Well, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome back uh, to the Prov Ooh, the Providence series. Just so you know, this week uh, Central had a consignment sale in this room. So thanks to our deacons and a lot of people who helped, all of our stage and all of our equipment was taken down and put away out of the room, and then all put back last night. Uh, probably with some sweat going on there. So thank you to all who did that. And so if there's a little feedback, it's because we're adjusting to the, the setup, just going back to how it is. So thank you guys for all who, who helped with that. Uh, for those who may be newer or listening for the first time, uh, we are walking through a Providence series. Right now we're dealing with the second half of that series, which is God's sovereignty, providence over salvation. And we are walking through the famous or infamous tulip, the, 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 the five points of Calvinism. And we have walked through total depravity, unconditional election, and now we're on the most controversial of the five, I think, which is the L. Not a great name, but limited atonement is what it's been called. We prefer particular redemption, definite atonement. You mentioned uh, effective atonement could be a good way of, of, of describing it as well. And so uh, just we're going to be doing our second week on that, and uh, we're building off a lot of what we covered last Sunday. Uh, Jerry, uh, how are we doing? Great. Okay, can you pray for us, and then yes, we'll, we'll jump in? Good deal. Father, we... Um, just are so overwhelmed by this thought that, uh, that you loved us in such a way, um, showered mercy on us while we were yet sinners, um, when we were hostile to you, when we didn't submit to your law. In fact, we couldn't even submit to your law. We couldn't please you in any way. And uh, Father, you uh, intercepted us on the road um, that we were on to hell and now have given us life eternal and abundant. Um, and today, Father, we thank you that you did not spare your own son, but you gave him up for us all, so that now along with him we know and can be guaranteed and can be sure that you will graciously give us all things. And uh, we would include this time um, as part of that, that we can grow and learn and feast on your word, we pray, that uh, we would be faithful and how we um, talk about this magnificent topic um, that we would do so humbly and um, based only on your word. And Lord, that your um, people would be encouraged and refreshed and convicted just as you see fit. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> and we're trying not to do too much review of last week, although we have to say just a few things, I think, in, in review of that. If you remember from last Sunday uh, with the five points that you can see on the screen here, uh, we, we talked about how the Father is particularly involved with election. It is God, the Father, who chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And then with the atonement, it is particularly God, the Son's work, who comes to die especially for His sheep uh, to secure the, the salvation of His bride, the church. And then the point we'll get to next, Lord willing, uh, irresistible grace, Again, maybe a more biblical title would be the, the effectual call of God, the sovereign call of God to salvation. Uh, that is the work specifically of God's Holy Spirit, uh, granting us a new heart, new life, giving us the gift of faith and repentance, and uh, making us willing to trust in Christ and believe in Christ. And then, of course, perseverance of the saints, which is that we must all uh, finally persevere to the end. I said this over and over last week at the beginning. In the end, I want to say it again this week. Jesus died for sinners in such a way that everyone who turns from sin and trust in Christ will be forgiven, and nothing we are teaching or mean to teach or plan to say about this topic in any way undermines or denies that statement. There has never been a sinner who has looked to Christ with saving faith and found him unable and unwilling to forgive that sinner. Every single person who turns to Christ in faith 
is forgiven. There are no exceptions, none of that. So anyone who says, well, what if I'm not elect? Here's, here's the answer. Trust Christ, and you will show yourself to be born again and to be alive in Christ. As Peter says, uh, make your calling and election sure by the transformation of your life. As your life is transformed, you make uh, you, the, the sovereign call of God in your life and, and his uh, choosing of you uh, sure and certain. Uh, just mentioned real quick, uh, I got this book for free 10 years ago at a conference. Uh, it has turned out to be a great book. Crossway put out a book 10 years ago on limited atonement. It's a huge whopping volume. It's tremendous. It's written by a whole bunch of great scholars, including people like uh, Tom Schreiner and John Piper and Sinclair Ferguson and Stephen Wellam and on and on and on. Uh, Alec Mateer, Carl Truman. And uh, it's really your one-stop shop on this topic. I mean, it's, it covers historical theology, uh, systematic theology, uh, exegetical issues all across the, the, the Bible from Old to New Testament, and it is full of phenomenal essays on this topic. It was edited by the Gibson brothers, David and Jonathan Gibson. And in, in their introduction, they wrote uh, what is on the screen here. They said, listen, particular redemption we believe is biblical, but there's more to it than simply that. There's more going on than just that one part. And they, they, they want to affirm, and we affirm with them these four things gladly. Number one, the sufficiency of Christ's death for all. So we believe Christ's death is not in any way insufficient to save every single person who's ever lived. Of course, his death had infinite merit. He does not have to suffer any more to, to save anybody he wants. No, his death is infinite in its sufficiency. Number two, we believe in the free and indiscriminate proclamation of the gospel to all, no exceptions. All right, we believe in offering and pleading with sinners, whoever they are, no matter what their past is like, no matter what their track record is like, no matter how bleak they look or how promising they look as potential Christians, does not matter because God can save the Apostle Paul out of killing Christians. He can save anybody. And so we believe in the free and indiscriminate pro proclamation of the gospel to all. Number three, we believe God has a real love for the non-elect and has a salvific stance toward a fallen world. Okay? Now, we're going to get into some of this more in future weeks, what that exactly looks like. But we believe God has a real love for all his creatures made in his image. And that he has a salvific stance towards the fallen world. And I want to take a moment here. Just bear with me. I want to read a long quote. It's on the it'll be on the screen. This is from John Piper, quoting some other authors about George Washington. It's an analogy. It's not perfect. But I think it really does help us a little bit with this topic. So you ready? Follow along here as I, as I read. An analogy from the life of George Washington, quote, A certain Major Andre had jeopardized the safety of the young nation through rash and unfortunate treasonous acts. One author says of the death warrant signed by Washington, per perhaps on no occasion of his life did the commander-in-chief obey with more reluctance the stern mandates of duty and of policy. Washington's compassion for Andre, the, the traitor, was real and profound. Now, did you hear this? Washington's compassion for this man was real and profound. He also had power to kill or to save alive, right? He's commander-in-chief. Why then did he sign the death warrant? If he really loved the guy, why did he sign the death warrant? Washington's volition, his choice to sign the death warrant of Andre did not arise from the fact that his compassion was slight or feigned, fake but from the fact that his compassion for Andre was rationally counterposed by a, complex, by a complex of superior judgments of wisdom, duty, patriotism, and moral indignation. Think of a wide-angle lens, thinking of all things considered in this scenario. Now imagine a defender of Andre the traitor 
hearing Washington say, I do this, i.e. what? I sign the death warrant with the deepest reluctance and pity. So imagine, Washington's signing the death warrant, and he says, I do this with reluctance and pity, real compassion. Then the defender says, since you are supreme in this matter and have full bodily ability to throw down that pen, we shall know by your signing this warrant that your pity is hypocritical. You don't really care for this man. If you did, you wouldn't sign the death warrant. Do you get? That's what the argument is. The petulance of this charge would have been equal to its folly. The pity of Washington was real, but was restrained by superior elements of motive. Washington had official and bodily power to discharge the criminal, but he had not the sanctions of his own wisdom and justice to do so. The corresponding point in the case of divine election is that the absence of a volition or choice in God to save does not necessarily imply the absence of real compassion. Do you follow that? God has a true compassion, which is yet restrained in the case of the non-elect by consistent and holy reasons from taking the form of a volition or choice to regenerate and save. God's infinite wisdom regulates his whole will and guides and harmonizes, not suppresses, all its active principles. There is a genuine inclination in God's heart to spare those who have committed treason against his kingdom. But his motivation is complex and not every true element in it rises to the level of effective choice. In his great and mysterious heart, there are kinds of longings and desires that are real. They tell us something true about God's character, yet not all of these longings govern God's actions. Therefore, Piper says, I affirm that God loves the world with a deep compassion, yet I also affirm that God has chosen from before the foundation of the world whom he will save from sin. And here's the conclusion. Since not all people are saved, we must choose whether we believe, with the Arminian perspective, that God's will to save all people is restrained by his commitment to human self-determination, often called libertarian free will, or whether we believe with the Calvinistic system of thought that God's will to save all people is restrained by his commitment to the glorification of his sovereign grace. Those are the two pathways from which we choose. And... Uh, if you'll turn your Bible to the end of Romans 10, end of Romans chapter 10, I want to show you a couple of texts that I think put these two aspects of God side by side. At the end of Romans 10, the very last verse, Romans 10, 21, God looks at Israel as a whole, and as a whole, Israel has rejected Jesus, right? The majority of Israel has rejected Jesus, and God says this, Romans 10, 21, but of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. What is God's disposition towards the majority there, toward, toward all of Israel? Is it a disposition of come to me, be saved? I'm holding out my hands. Please come and be forgiven. Come to know me. That's his disposition, right? His hands are held out all day long to Israel, yet the majority reject Jesus. Now, do you see God's real compassion for all in Israel? Now look just at the very next verse. Look at 11.1. Maybe start at 11.5, just to shorten the time here. 11.5. So too at the present time, referring to Israel, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Now do you see this? How many did God choose out of all of Israel? Only a small remnant. 
Now, do you see this? God is holding out his hands, pleading with all of Israel to be saved, and yet how many does he elect to save? Only a remnant. Do you see the two side by side? Real compassion, and yet the choice, to only, the choice of only some. Verse 6, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel as a whole failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect, the remnant, obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Verse 8, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. Now, do you see the two aspects of God in one text? He has a disposition of salvation toward all in Israel, yet he only chooses the remnant for election for salvation. Those are taught side by side. I want to bring you guys in in just a second. Let's turn to Matthew 11. So to your left, to Matthew chapter 11. And I think the exact same thing you see in Jesus in this amazing text. So the end of Matthew 11, verse 25. Again, this is Jesus himself speaking. Of course, all of Scripture is Jesus speaking. But Matthew eleven twenty-five. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things, the truths about the kingdom and the gospel, from the wise and understanding. God hid them from people? And you have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And look, look at this. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Do you see God's sovereign election here? Now look at the very next verse. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Does Jesus have a real disposition of longing for the salvation of all he's speaking to? Yes, but in his sovereignty, does he choose all for salvation? No, and those two things are not taught they're taught side by side. These are taught side by side in some of the same text. Greg and Jerry, just thoughts about this basic idea of God's disposition of salvation, but his only choosing of his elect. I want to hear Greg. This is going to be good. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, uh, wow. I'm a little under the weather, so I'll do my best to make sense today. Um, it, it is amazing when you think about it, um, because right, on, right before verse 25, it was the passage we've quoted before and referenced unconditional election about um, how, you know, God did not choose for cities like Sodom and Gomorrah mm -hmm. to get the same revelation that people in Jesus' day were getting. And so that immediately precedes uh, what he says in verse 25. And it is, an amazing, it is an amazing statement. Like, we don't typically think of Matthew having quotes like this. It's more Gospel of John. But, I mean, it, it is very clear here that there is this disposition, as you said, and this, this was huge for me, when you think about the fact that every human being is made in God's image, God loves his image bearers because they bear his image. He made them to know him. All human beings were made for God. Um, and so just by the fact that every human being is created specially by God, uh, he has a love for them. Like, he, he cares for them. I mean, we, we see this in uh, throughout the Gospels when Jesus talks about, like, he makes the, the, the rain mm -hmm. fall on the just and the unjust. Um, you know, Paul talks about that, him and Barnabas and, and Acts when they're, I, I think it's Ephesus, one of the places they're going. And like they're talking about, look, God, God provided fruitful seasons. He satisfied you with good things. Um, and yet even then people didn't worshiping. But you see in that common grace element of this, mm -hmm. God's genuine care for, 
not just the creation in general, but for people in particular. I mean, you, you can't walk away from Scripture and not see God's love, an indiscriminate kind of love for people, in the sense that there is image bearers. He provides basic necessities. I mean, God, God didn't do that begrudgingly. I mean, mm-hmm. these are people who are worshiping false gods, uh, turning away from him on a daily basis, um, not acknowledging him as the one true God, and, and all that goes into that idolatry, and yet God still gladly provides for them. And so when it comes to the, the biggest issue of salvation, you know, we should never reach a point where we think, you know, God looking at sinful image bearers, there, that there's nothing in, in God that doesn't care for them, even though they're in rebellion against him. I mean, we can't ever reach that point. And maybe we, I talked about this for five months since we started on God's sovereignty. It's pretty mysterious. But I'm thrilled when it's back to back like this, where we can believe just because it says it in Scripture, even if we can't completely explain it, we can say this is what Scripture uh, plainly teaches. And so we're going to believe it and then uh, do the best we can to understand it. That's good. So again, finishing these four points from a moment ago from the Gibson brothers, Christ's death is sufficient for all. We believe in the free proclamation of the gospel to all. God has a real love for the non-elect and a a salvific stance toward the fallen world. And number four, the atonement also has implications for the entire cosmos, not simply the church. So we find that there's going to be a new creation. And guess who bought that? The new creation is bought by the blood of Christ. The new creation is born. So Christ's death, uh, we want to affirm that as well. And I want to read another quote. It's not as long as the Piper quote, but it's a quote from Spurgeon. It's a good quote. There's a little bit, you can, you, can, you can hear Spurgeon's personality coming through in this quote. Listen to this. He says, now, I, before I read this, you know Spurgeon. We talk about Spurgeon all the time. I don't know if there was anybody in the 19th century who God used to win more people to saving faith in Christ than Charles Spurgeon. I mean, he, I don't know anyone who comes close to, I mean, people, every week people were saved reading printed copies of his sermons in the newspaper. And that was just, that was one group of people who were, and then, then people who heard him in person and all over his books. So Spurgeon was a soul winner if there ever was a soul winner, and he believed in limited atonement. And still today, right? People are still reading him. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. We, we benefit from him all the oh, time yeah. here. So, so here's, what, here's what Spurgeon said. Although he does not like the title limited atonement. He says this, We are often told that we limit the atonement of Christ because we say that Christ has not made a satisfaction for all men or all men would be saved. Now, our reply to this is that, on the other hand, it is our opponents who limit it. We do not. The Arminians say Christ died for all men. Ask them what they mean by it. Did Christ die so as to secure the salvation of all men? They say, no, certainly not. We ask them the next question. Did Christ die so as to secure the salvation of any man in particular? They answer no. They say, no, Christ has died that any man may be saved if, and then follow certain conditions of salvation. We say then we will go back to the old statement. Christ did not die so as beyond a doubt to secure the salvation of anybody, did he? You must say no. You are obliged to say it, for you believe that even after a man may be pardoned, He may yet fall from grace and perish. Now, who is it that limits the death of Christ? Why you? Do you hear Spurgeon with a twinkle in his eye? Why you do? Then listen to the next part. You say that Christ did not die so as to infallibly secure the salvation of anybody. That's general atonement or unlimited atonement. It it may sound nice and broad, but does it actually secure anyone's salvation? By definition, no. So listen, he says, we beg your pardon when, when you say we limit Christ's death. We say, no, my dear sir, it is you that do it. 
We say that, listen, we say as Reformed perspective, Christ so died that he infallibly secured the salvation of a multitude that no man can number, who through Christ's death not only may be saved, but are saved, must be saved, and cannot by any possibility run the hazard of being anything but saved. You are welcome to your atonement. You may keep it. We will never renounce ours for the sake of it. <laughs> now, he says, uh, now, beloved, when you hear anyone laughing or jeering at a limited atonement, you may tell them this. General atonement is like a great wide bridge with only half an arch. It does not go across the stream. It only professes to go halfway. It does not secure the salvation of anybody. Now, I had rather put my foot upon a bridge as narrow as Hungerford, which went all the way across, than on a bridge that was as wide as the world if it did not go all the way across the stream. Now, I hope you see there what Spurgeon is getting at. This is not a, a potential thing. Christ died not simply to make salvation potential. He died to secure your, the gift of faith, the new birth, and regeneration, which he purchased for you on the cross in the new covenant and gives to his own to make absolutely certain that we will respond in faith because he gives us the gift of faith, and that's purchased on the cross. So that means Jesus died for his own in a way in which he did not die for all. Otherwise, all would be saved. And so uh, that, that's Spurgeon's take on thoughts on his kind of humorous way of describing this. I love it. All right, well, we won't review John Frame's quote from last week. Let's turn to Romans 8. I think this is a tremendous text on this issue. We almost never talk about this particular slant of the chapter, but it is, I think, very much here. Now, Jerry, you have said that your favorite verse in the whole Bible, right, is what? 8.32, yes, can you, sir. Can you quote for us Romans 8.32 and tell us why it's your favorite? Well, I think I better read it. If, I'm, <laughs> if I misquote it as being my favorite, that'd be terrifying. He did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Why is this your number one pick? I think just the logic. If he has given us the Lord Jesus, which is sure he has, then we can be guaranteed he is going to take care of everything else because it's lesser. The argument from greater to lesser is why I love this, this verse. That's great. So here's the question we want to ask. We don't normally think about Romans 8.32 in light of definite atonement. But I want to argue that it's there because do you see Romans 8.32? What's the phrase he uses? Gave him up for us all. You see that right there? He gave him up for us all. So the question is, in context, who is the us all that Christ was given up for? All right, now, I know we know this text really well, but let's just read it. Greg, can you read for us 8.28 all the way to 39? The whole thing. Yeah. All right, I got it. And just listen for who is being referred to. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who were called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Let's pause right here, Greg. This is a good spot to stop. So looking at these verses right here, and we've got some of them here on the screen, do you see what the logic is here? 
So it's, there's no doubting who the audience is. Who are the we's and the us's? It's, it's the elect, right? I mean, you, you've got the words elect right here in verse 33. So the we's and the us's are right there, the, the elect of God, God's chosen ones, all who will come to faith in Christ, God's particular people, right? That's, who, that's who's being spoken of. So when he says we and us, it's God's elect is the, is the context. It starts in 28 like that, those who love God, and that's not the unbeliever. That's right. Those who love God and be called according to his purpose. So then look at the logic of 832 in light of the, the fact he's talking to the elect. He, God the Father, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Us all here cannot be referring to every individual on earth. It has to be referring to the elect because that's in context who the us are. So us all is all God's true people. He gave him up for all of us, and that's how the logic works. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Because the all yeah. then refers to that second part of the verse, the us is just only those who are the elect graciously get the all things that he's talking about at the end of the verse. Yes, and I want to get Greg to talk about intercessor and the death here in this text in just a second. Before, before he does that, uh, here's a Piper quote about Romans 8.32 on the screen. What becomes of this logic, Romans 8.32's logic, if God gave his son in this way for thousands who do not receive all things, but in fact perish? Here, here listen to this. The logic of Romans 8.32 is destroyed. It becomes, if God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all people in the world, then, since many of them are lost, it is not true that they will most certainly receive all things with him. Uh, that is not the point of the verse. Do you see? The logic of this verse falls apart if you believe that Jesus died for all in the same way. Because the whole argument is, if he died for his elect in a special way, then that is proof that God's going to give you all that you need to make it to the end, enduring in faith. Um, Greg, thoughts on that? And then I want to move into this intercession idea here. No, I'll, my mind's already going towards the well, let's, can you Can you take us into that with, yeah. the, with these verses? All right. So, again, we're, we're talking about verse 32, God not sparing his own son, but giving him up for us all. It's talking about Christ's death, okay? And then you look at verse 34. Let's read it again, and let's think about that last phrase, last question, or last statement Paul makes. He asks the question, who is to condemn? So if you're elect, God gave his son for you, you've been foreknown, predestined, justified, or called justified, and you will be glorified. Who is to condemn? God is for you, okay? And this is how he answers his question here. He says, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So we see here the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and the ascension of Jesus back into heaven to the right hand of the Father as our mediator, our great high priest, who is interceding for us. We have to think, because again, Paul was, was an Old Testament scholar extraordinaire. Like he was a preeminent Old Testament scholar. We know that. He knew it probably better than most people. And if we go back to the Old Testament and we think about the, what the high priest would do, uh, who on the day of atonement, he would make atonement for the people. He would make atonement and he would intercede. Mm -hmm. And what would happen? The people for whom he made atonement and interceded were the ones who received the benefits of the atonement. No one outside of that got any benefits from it, at least saving benefits. He, he was, for, for instance, the, the high priest was not making atonement and praying for every nation. He yeah. was making atonement and making intercession for the covenant people of God only. That's yeah. a particular redemption, right, in the Old Testament. And mm -hmm. so that, that's applying here to Jesus. Yeah, and that has to be in the background. Right. It was a particular focus even in the Old Testament. Right. And we have to remember that. The Day of Atonement was only for Israel. Yeah, it was only for Israel. Was it sufficient for any Gentile who came in and right. had faith? Yes. 
but it was, it was for Israel. And so we have to keep that connection in mind. Those for whom the high priest makes atonement are the exact same ones he prays for and intercedes for, okay? There's an absolute unbreakable connection there. And the intercession, the praying for the people is effective. At no point did the high priest, if he, if he did what he was supposed to, and then he made atonement and then um, in, you know, interceded in that sense, at no point would there ever be a question, well, what he's praying for them may or may not happen. It was effective, okay? Keep that in mind as we think about this. Who is Jesus praying for? Who is he interceding for? He's interceding for those for whom he made atonement. Like, as the high priest, he makes atonement for his people, his chosen ones, his elect. And so he made atonement through his death, rose, ascended, went to heaven, and now he's interceding like a good high priest does. And every single person he intercedes for are the ones he made atonement for. I mean, it's, it's and again, this isn't, because one, one of the contentions that will sometimes be made is, oh, you're just squeezing the biblical text into like outside logic and you're making it do things that it, that it can't really do. That's the logic of the Bible. That's not my logic. That's not Mark's logic. That's not some alien philosophy that we're importing onto the text. That's the logic of the text rooted in the whole of Scripture. The high priest makes atonement and intercedes for the people he makes atonement for. And it has to be effective. There, there's, no, there's no insertion anywhere of an ineffective atonement. It's not just potential, it's actual. And this is why we saw last week, if you remember, remember the, the, the night before Jesus died? The Last Supper, he's praying, John 17, verse 9. I am, he says this, remember, I am not praying for the world. I'm praying for those whom you have given me, for they are yours, you've given them to me. Then he says, I'm also praying for all who will believe in me through their message. So Jesus explicitly says, my mm -hmm. intercession in John 17 is not for the world. It's for those whom the Father has given him, which are the sheep, the elect, the, the bride of Christ. So I, I think that you, you explicitly see Jesus taking his intercession and limiting mm -hmm. it in, in John 17 yeah. to those whom the Father has given uh, to the Son. Jerry, thoughts on that? Well, no wonder then that golden chain is true, that those who are foreknown are predestined, and those who are predestined are called, those who are called are justified, and every single person that's justified it's being today you, if you know the Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit's interceding for you from verse 26 and 27. The Lord Jesus is in verse 34, God's for you. Who could be against you? The, the obvious answer is no one can successfully be against you. So no wonder those that are justified then are glorified. Those that Jesus has paid for through his death, all of them will be glorified end up in heaven one day. Can I, can I make another comment yeah. on this? I'm glad I, I have my text. We're going back and forth. <laughs> Stuff I was sending them, we're thinking through together as we're preparing for this. This is why we cannot have, biblically speaking, an atonement that is actual for every person or effective. Like, and that, that's his design. Like, he, if, if the atonement actually removes your sin and pays for everything wrong that you've done, then you have to be saved. You have to. Why? Because Jesus is going to pray, pray for you in that same way. If he paid the penalty for your sin, then he's going to pray for you in heaven. Because again, there's an unbreakable connection between those he dies for and those he prays for. And so keep that in mind when we talk about like, you know, we'll get to this eventually, like John 3, 16, 1 John 2, 2, that mention the world. There's, I think there's some textual nuances there that we're going to bring out. But if Jesus actually paid for the sins of every person, every person is going to be saved. Without fail. Let me, let me back that up. I, we may not have time to turn to it, 
But just real quick, also at the Last Supper, remember Peter says, I'll never deny you. You, you love it whenever Peter opens his mouth. You're like, man, Peter, you remind me of myself sometimes. I'll never deny you. And then this is, this is amazing. Only Luke records this particular moment. Listen to this. This is Luke 22, 31. Simon, Simon. Now listen, the yous in the first verse are plural. They're y'alls in Hebrew. And then the yous in the next verse are singular, only applied to Peter. Listen to how that makes a difference. Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to have all of you. It's a you plural. Yes, it's y'all. Okay, it's y'all in Greek. Uh, God is, Jesus, Satan has asked to have all of y'all, all of you, that he might sift all of you like wheat. And then now it switches to a singular you. Listen, but I have prayed for you singular. What's Jesus praying? This is intercession, saving effective intercession. But I have prayed for you, Peter, specifically. The implication, not Judas. Listen, I prayed for you, Peter, singular, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. This is Jesus saying, hey, tonight you're going to do something horrible, Peter. You're going to deny me, and Judas is going to betray me, and Satan wants all of you to be his. Peter, I've prayed for you singular, that your faith won't fail. After you deny me, you're going to weep bitterly. You're going to hear the rooster. You're going to see me. You're going to turn, repent, and you're going to be restored to your position, and you're going to strengthen your brothers. Jesus did not pray that for Judas because it would have happened to Judas. His intercession is effective, right? God doesn't go, no, Jesus, I'm not going to do that. No, no Jesus' intercession is effective. And so when he, when he is interceding for the salvation of his elect, it's going to come true. And so Jesus did not pray that for Judas. Otherwise, Judas would not have gone out and did what he did. Uh, instead, he prayed it specifically in the singular for Peter, and that brought about his repentance. So again, atonement and intercession go together in the work of a priest, and they're for the covenant people of yeah. God. I think that's the, that's the big point there. So turn with us now to Hebrews 2. Hebrews chapter 2, and I told you, we've got a lot of texts that are going to come to all of our minds. What about the all text? Jesus died for all. What about the world text? Jesus propitiated the world, those kinds of texts. We're going to begin walking through those now. We're not going to be able to get through until next week with these. There's just too many, but we're going to cover a sampling of these texts. Uh, the Greek word for all is the word pos, and it can mean, uh, well, it can mean several things, but it can mean all without exception, as in every person in the world. It can also mean all in a group, like everyone in this room. It can also mean all without distinction, that is, some from every kind, like every kind of disease Jesus healed. Not literally every disease, but every kind of disease. So just know the word has different meanings. Let's look at a very classic text that's used for unlimited atonement, Hebrews 2.9. I'm going to skip some words just to shorten it, but it says, but we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now, that just seems crystal clear. You know, I mean, a person will look at this and say, what you guys are teaching is obviously wrong. I mean, how much more clear can that be? He tasted death for pus, for all, for everyone. There's just no doubt. It's every single person. He died for all in the same way. Now listen, I want to be as careful with this as you do, so let's look in context. The context is going to tell us who the all are. Are you ready? Let's just, the very next verse, let's just follow it, and all the orange words on the screen will tell you who the all are. Here we go. Verse 10, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, that's God the Father, in bringing many sons to glory, that's his elect, should make the founder of their salvation, that's the sons, that's the elect, perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, that's the elect, all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. 
That's the elect. Saying, verse 12, I will tell of your name to my brothers. That's the elect only. In the midst of the congregation, that's God's people, the elect, I will sing your praise. Verse 13, and again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. That's not the unelect, that's the elect. Verse 14, since therefore the children, that's the elect, share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all, who's the all? Those uh, who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery, for it is not angels that he helps, but he helps who? The true offspring of Abraham. That's true believers in Christ. If you believe, you have faith like Abraham, you're an offspring of Abraham. So do you see when you read the text in context, who is the all? It's all God's true people, all Christ's true brothers, all the true offspring of Abraham. When read in context, the all is limited to God's true people. I think that's a fair reading. If you don't believe it, just spend time in Hebrews 2 on that, on that note. Um, let's turn to another one. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Made me smile. Scott read it during prayer time last Sunday, and I thought, I wonder what people are thinking about this issue as Scott read it. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5 is a famous text used for unlimited atonement. I don't think it means that, but I understand why people take it that way. 2 Corinthians 5, 14. It's a wonderful text. Mm -hmm. For the love of Christ controls us. 2 Corinthians 5, 14. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this that one has died for all. So there it is. One has died for all, and therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Now, this is a little bit confusing. You see how it looks like he died for everybody, right? He died for all, pos, same word, all. But you see, he gives us more information about who this group is right afterwards. He died for all, Therefore, the all, now would you agree the all here is the same all? He died for all, therefore all, same group, have died. That's the key to understanding this text. See, is it true that unbelievers died in Christ when Jesus died on the cross? Did the unelect die in Christ when Jesus died? Who are the only people who die with Christ and are raised to new life? The elect, the believer. So just as a cross-reference here, look at Romans 6, 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, if we've died with him, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. To die with Christ is to be guaranteed that you will be raised with Christ. It's to be the elect, to be part of God's people. Romans 6, 7. For one who has died with Christ, died, has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. So do you see? Now let's go back to the verse. One has died for all. Who's the all? And therefore all have died in Christ, right? All have died in Christ. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sakes died and was raised. Do you see? The all is all who have died in Christ and who, have, who now live with Christ. It's God's elect. You see, again, this is a text that's normally used the other way. I think it's clearly teaching he died for those who die in Christ, which is only God's people. <clears throat> Thoughts on, on a text like this from you guys? Well, I mean, you have to come to the text with assumptions if you're going to see it differently. Right. Like, we see what we want to see until we actually ask the text what it's saying. Right. And the weight of the evidence in this text back in Hebrews um, is so clear in context that this is the elect. This is those whom God has chosen. This is God's people whom he foreknew, whom he predestined, all that. Um, you have to assume... A certain definition of all. Right. You have to do that... <clears throat> 
Because um, some people will say sometimes, well, all means all, and that's all all means. And it's like, well, like you said, there's at least three different uses of the word depending on the context. Um, and so again, Paul is going to be consistent. Um, if anything, he's going to be consistent. I mean, the way he was trained mm-hmm. with his upbringing and his scholarship and all that. So you can read in one book and trust he's going to be consistent in his thought and everywhere else he talks about it. Um, and so he's not going to introduce some brand new thing out of the blue. Oh, I, I said this over here, but I, you know, over here I said something completely different. Again, Scripture is not going to contradict itself, and we shouldn't read it in such a way as to make it like contradict. Right. Again, we've talked about this, but I want to say it again. When it comes to issues like this, we don't want to pit Scripture against itself. Um, and that goes no matter what side of this you're on. Like, uh, you have to deal honestly and openly and really with, with different texts, even if one seemed to maybe push back against your position. But the one thing we don't want to do is be like, oh, you know, we've got this text clearly teaches election. Well, this text over here teaches the opposite, so therefore I just canceled your text out. Scripture doesn't cancel right, Scripture. Right. And we never, and again, I don't think we do that intentionally, but we can become so beholden to a particular position that we are unable to see when Scripture is clearly teaching opposite to that. And so we want to take the time to do like we're doing here. You know, remember I said way, way early on in this, we don't want to just hover over the text. Oh, look, it, it says what I think it says. No, we want to get down into the text. We want to get in it. We want to wait around and we want to let it flavor and shape how we're thinking. And that's what we're trying to do with this. And when you do that, you start to see, I think, inevitably, Scripture leads us one direction. And it is not libertarian free will. It's not... Um, an unlimited atonement that's for every single person without fail, even though it doesn't accomplish anything. We see scripture consistently presenting the death of Christ as actually affecting the salvation of the people God had chosen before him. Okay, so I know we're running low on time. We've got about nine minutes or so, but uh, we'll try to move through this pretty quickly. I don't know how it's possible, but we'll try. So uh, here we go. The Greek word cosmos or world uh, has at least seven or eight meanings. So just real quick on the screen, the word world can mean the universe as a whole in John 1.10. In John 1.10, it has multiple meanings. It can also mean the inhabitable earth. World can mean every individual without exception, Romans 3.19. It can mean an indistinct large group of people. When they say the whole world is going after Jesus, it doesn't mean everybody. It means a large group. Uh, Number five, a subset of mankind that's hostile to God. The world will hate you. Uh, The world system in opposition to Christ don't love the world. Uh, the Gentile world, in contrast to the Jewish people, is the world in John 4.42 and on and on. So the world world is, it can mean, the word world can mean a lot of stuff. Let's look here at, at 1 John 2, 2, which I think is one of the strongest texts for unlimited atonement. And I'll just stand up here to, to kind of illustrate this. So we know this verse, very strong text on the other side, I think. At least at first glance it is. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Now, do you see here, this is like the intercession of Jesus before the Father. It's the priestly role of the advocate, which he is only for his true people, right? So remember, advocate goes together with the cross. Atonement and intercession go together in the same, in same text. With the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And people say, it's crystal clear. He's the propitiation for every single individual. People take it as <clears throat> our sins meaning believers, not believers only, but also for unbelievers, the unelect, the whole world. And I see why people go there, but I don't think that works for a couple of reasons here. Uh, n- number one, as we've already discussed, uh, Mike Riccardi says it like this, the universal atonement position separates the inseparable work of the priestly ministry of Jesus. On the one hand, Christ is the propitiation for all without exception, 
but he's only the heavenly advocate for believers. That can't be. We can't split the, the heavenly intercession of Christ. But if that doesn't sound convincing, I'll tell you, my mind blew a gasket when I saw this cross-reference, okay? I think Piper was the first one that showed this to me. Listen to this cross-reference, which really is strong, I think, in favor of limited atonement. L listen to this. This is after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. One of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. He's a wonderful man. And nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Are you ready for this? He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only. Does that sound familiar? But also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Now, if, if you don't see it right away, let me put the verses side by side. I mean, this really is incredible. I mean, they're structured almost the same way. Look, he's the propitiation for our sins. Jesus would die for the nation and not for ours only, and not for the nation only, but also for the sins of the whole world. But also, what does the whole world mean here? To gather into one the elect, the children of God, scattered throughout the world. Isn't that an amazing parallel text? John is telling you how to understand the whole world by this parallel text. Same author, right? And look, he's the propitiation, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. What does that mean? Jesus' death is going to be effective to save all the elect. Jesus is going to, by his death, gather all the children of God who are scattered throughout the whole earth, and he is going to effectively redeem and propitiate and save all of them at the end. So, I mean, that, that is, I think, a remarkable cross-reference. Thoughts on, on that text? Well, I mean, it, it points out the sufficiency that we've talked about multiple times. Um, he, you know, his death... And it, it, guys, if, if, you've ever, if you ever have a chance to read Andrew Fuller, he was a great Baptist theologian of the 1700s. He was part of the original um, missions movement with William Carey and stuff like that, um, you know, to, to start the modern missions movement, as we call it. Andrew Fuller was kind of the theologian of that movement. And he wrote a lot on, on systematic theology. He wrote a lot on, on issues like this. And one of the things he talks about when we think of um, the sufficiency of Christ's death, uh, for all people. He says you, you, you can look at it in one of two ways. You can look at Christ's death as it, is, as it is in itself without respect to his intention to save, and then you can look at it with respect to who he's actually going to apply this death to and who he's intending it for. And when you think of it just in respect to what it is without the intent to save, because Jesus died as a man for men, he died he was reckoned a sinner so that he could save sinners. And because his humanity was joined to his divinity, he's both God, he's both man and God, then his divinity gives his death an infinite value because his humanity in his death was tied to his divinity. And therefore, it, it's of infinite, limitless value in that sense. So that's why we can offer the gospel and say it's the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. And in another sense, going at this is because he, when he died, his humanity was also joined to his being God. And so it gave it a worth that you can't put a value on. And it's one of those things. It's, it's um, because of that, any person from our perspective, we don't need to say, did he die for me? But the question is, did he die for sinners? Yes. And if I see myself to be a sinner, then I know I can be saved by his death. Does that mm -hmm. make sense? Mm -hmm. That nuance right there, because in, in and of itself, of its worth, 
You, you can't like say it was only this worth this much or worth this much. Because in, as a human being, he was also God. It's of infinite value. Mm -hmm. And therefore we can say, yes, he, he, he actually saves his elect, but there's nothing in the atonement itself that's deficient to save anyone. And that gets back to why we can preach the gospel to everyone. If you will own yourself to be a sinner, you can be saved by Jesus' death for sinners. Absolutely. Do we have time for Ephesians 2? Yeah, let's two? go real quick. No, it's Ephesians good. 2, we've got a couple verses left here. And this is a practical takeaway, I think, to this whole doctrine. Jerry, can you lead us through this, Ephesians 2, 4, and uh, 5? Yeah, and, and not much time left, but this is rich. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And so I think we can't forget this mercy. It's rich in mercy. There's no room for entitlement in our life, is there? Because everything we've given, if we go back to the eight. 32, things he has graciously given. That's all due to his mercy. Mercy is, is things that we get that we don't deserve, not getting what we do deserve. And so there's no room for entitlement. And this is a great love because of the great love for which he loved us. And so certainly there is a way in which he loved the whole world. Mm -hmm. I had a professor, um, a Bible college, or a, a seminary professor that was just a godly man. And he said, when I sit in church and I'm preaching to everybody, I look in the, out throughout the church and I love all of my congregation. But he said, my family sits in the front row. And he says, I have a different sort of love for them. I love them in a different way. Do I love everybody? Absolutely, I love everybody in our church. But I love my family in a whole different way. And I think we see here that there is a great love for which he loved us, his elect. Yeah, now this is just a challenge. If, if this is still a new topic to you or something that you're still trying to understand, this is what, I'm, what we're trying to offer is to say this. There is something, there's, okay, there's one thing to say Jesus loves everybody, but there's something else to say there's a great love with which he loves some, not all, and that's a regenerating, saving love, which is in this verse. This great love that leads to the new birth when we're dead in sins is not a love God has for all or gives to all. It's a love that he only gives to his people because only his people are born again. And so if you want to know what it's like not to be loved generically by God, but to be loved distinguishingly and specifically and unconditionally by God for salvation, you want to get a hold of this doctrine. Okay, this is a special way in which God loves you, a great love that he has for his elect that he does not have for all. It's a special, distinguishing, regenerating, saving love that makes us alive while we're dead in sin. And if you want to know God's love better, the doctrine of election is a doorway to, to know that love. It's a special, distinguishing, saving love, a great love that he has for his own that he doesn't have for all in the same way. Yeah, so the doctrine's not just something heady and something to think about, but it is absolutely life-changing to a way to bathe in God's love in a whole different way. Can you close this, Jerry? Yes, sir. Father, we uh, do thank you that um, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we see that you are rich in mercy and you loved us with a immense love. Um, and Lord, we thank you that um, we can consider this love today. And Lord, I pray that we would be, because of this love, this love does compel us like we've seen earlier. It controls us, and I pray that we would um, take the love that which you have loved us and uh, love others in that same way, um, and that we would um, persuade others of the great truth of your word in Jesus' name.
Amen.